I decided to depart from my study of Barnabas simply because I didn't know how much time I would have tonight. I didn't know how long the meeting would take. And so uh, I wanted to be very careful in my next presentation of Barnabas, for we're going to look at that situation that existed between Paul and Barnabas and their disagreement over Mark. And I wanted to be sure to have the full amount of time to, to deal with that uh, difficult portion of Scripture. And then, having considered the portion of Scripture we were in this morning, I thought I would follow up with another message on despairing of life itself. Uh, I thought it would be helpful to take it one step further, and in preparation for next Sunday morning, when we're going to look at how God ministered to uh, Elijah on the top of Mount Sinai. Introduction. It is important that we understand how spiritual giants have wrestled with depression. This certainly will color our thoughts on the issue. Is depression foreign to the spiritually mature? I've already answered that question this morning, but I want to give you more illustrations and bring it into more of everyday life. A name that many people know is that of Charles Spurgeon, very famous preacher in the 1800s. What uh, not everyone knows, although it really is common knowledge, is that Charles Spurgeon suffered from very severe bouts of depression. Uh, we learned that, uh, and I quote, approximately one-third of his final 22 years of ministry were spent outside of the pulpit, either suffering, convalescing, or taking precaution against the return of illness. He was 57 years old when he died. Thus, from the age of 35 on, he suffered greatly. So when I say he was outside the pulpit, he was really pretty much disabilitated. And uh, those were not like two years that he took off, but it was very common for him to preach sometimes only six months out of the year. And the other six months, he was just wrestling with both physiological and psychological issues. Uh, so he lived a, a difficult life. And uh, in his autobiography, C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, The Full Harvest, it's a two-volume work, and it's very revealing about the nature and character of Charles Spurgeon. There are approximately 15 different, different biographies that I'm aware of and have read about Spurgeon's life, but nothing is quite as helpful, I think, as his autobiography, for it is the most honest and illuminating concerning his struggles. In The Sword and Trowel, which was a news letter, if you will. It was a magazine that he published, he edited. In the Sword and Trowel, Spurgeon wrote of himself these words, and I quote, the editor's painful indisposition compels him to forgo his usual monthly notes and also the exposition of the Psalms. Too great pressure of work has produced a Disorder whose root is more mental than physical. Wearisome pain added to relative affliction 
an ever-increasing responsibility, make up a burden under the weight of which unaided mortal strength must sink. An all-sufficient God is our joy and rejoicing. I, I thought, you know, putting that aspect of the depression with joy and rejoicing, and, and how do you balance that? Uh, I thought this was a, a helpful quote uh, from a work that is entitled um, The Anguish and Agonies of Charles Spurgeon, written by uh, Daryl uh, Amundsen. And uh, this is what he writes. If Spurgeon was acquainted with depression before, following the Surrey Hall disaster, it became a more frequent and perverse companion. Now let me talk to you a moment about that Surrey Hall disaster. What's it referring to? Well, Spurgeon became a pastor at a very young age. He was about 17 years old. And he became pastor of the new Park Street Chapel. It was an older congregation. It was an older building. And it had fallen in disrepair and had gotten down to just a, a few uh, congregants at that point. At one point, it was a rather significant church, but it had deteriorated greatly. They called Charles Spurgeon to be their pastor. The church seated 1,500, and it wasn't long before the church was busting at its seams. And they rented a hall, uh, Exeter Hall, that seated 4,500 people. And it wasn't that long before they actually filled that hall each Sunday of 4,500 people. So they decided they needed to build a, a new church. And the church that he's famous for is the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And uh, it seats over 5,000 people. It was the first megachurch, if you will. And uh, he was the pastor of that church in London. While that church was being built, they decided to rent Surrey Hall. Now, Surrey Hall was known as basically an amusement center. Uh, there'd be circuses that would be held there. Uh, there would be musicals that were held there. All kinds of entertainment would take place at Surrey Hall. And so he was really chastised by the other pastors in London for using a worldly venue for having a worship service. Uh, people came down hard on uh, Spurgeon and uh, those in the leadership of the church for ever thinking about having a service in Surrey Hall. That weighed heavily upon him and uh, thought that it was the right thing to do. And the very first service that was held in October, it was jammed full. Over 12,000 people came as celebration of this first service that was going to be held at Surrey Hall. And shortly after they had gathered, someone in the crowd yelled fire and said that the balcony was falling. Well, panic erupted, and people were fleeing for the exits, and seven people were trampled to death. And many were injured as a result of 
this stampede, there was no fire. And the balcony wasn't falling. But the yell that there was a fire and the balcony was falling resulted in this stampede. Well, Spurgeon really wrestled with, was this God's judgment for meeting in Surrey Hall? Should he have done that? Should he not have done that? And he really spiraled into depression uh, after that and literally wept for weeks and uh, was pretty inconsolable about that event. So that was a, a major turning point in his life. But as is stated, he wrestled with depression before that incident. It says in October 1858, he had his first episode of an capacitating illness since coming to London, having been absent from his pulpit for three days, three Sundays. When he returned, he preached on 1 Peter 1.6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. In the sermon entitled, The Christian's Heaviness and Rejoicing, Spurgeon said that during his illness, when my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. This was before the Surrey experience. A kind friend was telling me of some poor old soul living near who was suffering very great pain, and she was full of joy and rejoicing. I was so distressed by the hearing of that story and felt so ashamed of myself while he was struggling with the contrast between his depression and the joy evidenced by this woman who was afflicted with cancer. This text flashed upon my mind with its real meaning that sometimes the Christian should not endure his sufferings with a gallant and joyous heart, but that sometimes his spirit should sink within him and that he should become even as little child, smitten beneath the hand of God. Spurgeon was indeed frequently in heaviness. That's what he would refer to it as. Sometimes Spurgeon's depression was a direct result of his various illnesses, perhaps simply physiologically and uh, psychologically, psychologically, and the case of his gout, probably physiologically as well. Despite this, Spurgeon thought of his own depression as his worst feature. And one commented that despondency is not a virtue. I believe it is a vice. I am heartily ashamed of myself for falling into it, but I am sure there is no remedy for it like a holy faith in God. Spurgeon comforted himself with the realization that such depression equipped him to minister more effectively. I would go into the deeps a hundred times to cheer a downcast spirit. It is good for me to have been afflicted that I might know how to speak a word in season to one that is weary. Martin Luther. Luther's depression was always marked by the same features, a feeling of profound aloneness, a sense that God was singling him out for suffering, a loss of faith that God is good and good to me, and a resulting inward self-reliance. Luther's depression only intensified under the burden of the Reformation's unforeseen fruit, the more that regularly hurting Christians sought him as a physician of souls, the more acutely he felt the weight of responsibility for his teaching and writing. He couldn't shake the notion that the reforms he advocated might destroy 
rather than revive the church. Sickness, unbelief, and anxiety conspired and drove him to the brink of despair. In a letter to his friend Melanchthon on August the 2nd, 1527, Luther wrote, and I quote, I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain, and I still tremble, completely abandoned by Christ. I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. But through the prayers of the saints, his friends, God began to have mercy on me and pulled my soul from the inferno below. You can see that this is real pain, this is real suffering, and so often church history just wants to kind of put those things under the rug and they're not talked about that much, but both Spurgeon and uh, Luther suffered from very, very severe depression. The theme is tonight that Paul informs the Corinthians of the intense suffering that he endured. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, it reads, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's Paul's testimony. That's what Paul says. He was so burdened that he despaired of life itself, meaning that he thought he couldn't go on. He, he thought that he couldn't carry the weight any longer. He thought he was going to die. And it's not out of persecution. It is out of a sense of being overwhelmed. So as you think about the verses that talk about rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I rejoice, remember that, that the Apostle Paul is the one who, who wrote those. So it doesn't mean that we are impervious to the struggles and difficulties of, of life. Uh, one can get the impression that as Christians, trials and difficulties ought to roll off our back like, like water off a duck. But, but that's not right. That's... Whether you look at the Psalms and you look at David's grief or agony, you could look at so many places in the scriptures about the sufferings that God's people endure. So I just wanted to look at this verse tonight with you and uh, bring some thoughts to mind. Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that Paul had been under great stress while in Asia. Verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware. He wanted to inform. He wanted to tell the Corinthians, what he was going through so that they would understand. They would be aware. They'd be sensitive and they'd learn from his own experience. It is interesting that Paul does not reveal what is the source of the stress that he is experiencing in Asia. He says the afflictions were experienced in Asia, but it, but it doesn't go into detail as to what they are. I believe that part of that is so that they'd be general in nature and people wouldn't just think about afflictions in the exact way that Paul experienced them. But our afflictions can be different. They can be emotional, they can be physical, they can be spiritual. They can be all kinds of different anxieties. And God can minister to the plethora of them. So it isn't that we all have the exact same experience, but we all have the same source of help and strength. We do know that Paul had encountered many 
sources of stress in his life. Paul had suffered the physical stresses of persecution. 2 Corinthians 11, 23, 24, and 25. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. And then he gives some specifics. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Uh, it was uh, forbidden by Jewish law to whip an individual 40 times. So they would, uh, excuse me, 41 times. It could only be 40. So according to Jewish law, they would administer whipping 39 times, just in case they miscounted, that they wouldn't have gone over and done the 41. Perhaps you've seen pictures of slaves whose backs were laid open by a bullwhip. And in the area of time that, which Paul ministered, uh, it wasn't a bull whip, it was a, it was a uh, wooden handle with leather straps that had pieces of shell and uh, other things that were embedded in it to rip your skin. Five times, on five different occasions, he was beaten 39 times. Now, can you imagine your back laid open with a whip 39 times? and then going through that on five different occasions. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And we're not going to look at all these, but the time that he was stoned, he was left for dead. He fell unconscious from the beatings that, that he took. Again, it's easy to browse over those kinds of things, but can you... Just imagine your, your body being beaten with rods. You'd have broken bones. You, you think about arthritis. You, you think about the aches and pains that would come out of that on a constant basis. Paul later speaks about the thorn in his flesh and how he prayed that God would remove the sufferings that he went under. Paul had suffered the stresses of traveling hardships, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day, I was adrift at sea. Paul was constantly under the stress that resulted from a variety of dangerous situations. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. You see the recurring theme of danger. And again, I, I would just say that, that we need to be so careful in, in the way that, that we understand Scripture that, that we don't get this false view of life that because we trust in Christ, there is no danger out there. Danger is real. You walk down a dark alley in a city. I mean, you could be mugged. Uh, that's not a lack of faith. That's common sense to realize that, that we live in a dangerous world. We live in a dangerous place. And Paul says that he was very cognizant of those dangers all the time. We just didn't sit aboard ship and, 
and just whistle his day away. He thought about the fact that he was going into a city where he was going to be persecuted. He thought about the fact that the Gentiles uh, didn't want to hear his message, that the Jews had rejected him. He was not impervious to those things. Paul experienced the stresses of physical needs, verse 27, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. In the book of 2 Timothy, it's almost an aside, but he says to Timothy, bring my cloak when you come. He's cold. He's in prison. He's saying, bring me something to get me through this winter. Paul knew the emotional and physical stress of ministry. This uh, really strikes me. For it says in verse 28, and apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure of me and my anxiety for all the churches. If all those things aren't bad enough, Paul says, I have the daily stress and anxiety of caring for the churches. If you notice, there is a, a building of to a climax. Things are worse and worse as you work through this, this section. And for Paul, the greatest pressure was the anxiety over the churches. Corinth must have been a nightmare for Paul. Thinking about dealing with those church discipline issues, thinking about their rejection of him in the gospel, he didn't take those things lightly. And he says that there was this anxiety. So, D, Paul was not a wimp, right? I mean, you, you get the idea here that, that, that here's a guy that knows about suffering. And yet, he says, in the beginning of the book, I want you to know I despaired of life. I want you to know that I got to the breaking point. I want you to know that I thought I couldn't go on any longer. That shouldn't amaze us. I mean, if you just read this and... I hope we would get it. I, I hope we would say, yeah, I, I think after all that, you might want to give up. I think you might want to quit. I, I think you might want to just hang it up and say, forget it. He was accustomed to suffering. One might think of Paul's life like a Timex watch. He took a licking, but he kept on ticking. How many people remember that commercial? Those used to be great commercials in the old days. Remember, they took a Timex watch and they would, they would put it on the propeller of a, of a boat and put it in the ocean and, and let the, the boat be you know, banging this thing and they'd pick it out and there's the Timex watch still running. It kept on ticking. And, and I think that's kind of the way that we look at God's people. They take a licking, but they keep on ticking, no matter what you throw at them. But Paul tells us there's a limit. There's a limit. There's a limit. And I would suggest to you that all of us have a limit. That 
There's only so much that we are able to bear, but the comfort is that God knows what that limit is. And he has promised that he will never bring into our lives anything more than what we can bear. But we might have to bear it solely in his strength and not ours. Two, Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that Paul had been under more stress than he could handle. Verse 8, for we don't want to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. Utterly burdened beyond our strength. John Calvin writes concerning his own life, and I quote, therefore he afflicts us either with disgrace or poverty or bereavement or disease or other calamities, utterly unequal to bearing these insofar as they touch us we soon succumb to them. Thus humbled, we learn to call upon his power, which alone makes us stand fast under the weight of afflictions. But even the most holy persons, however much they may recognize that they stand not through their own strength, but through God's grace, are too sure of their own fortitude and constancy, unless by the testing of the cross we bring them into a deeper knowledge of himself. Paul says, excuse me, John Calvin says in essence, no matter how spiritual you are, and no matter how much you say that you know that apart from God's grace and strength, you cannot stand, John Calvin says you don't really know that until you get to the place where you can't stand. You won't know how frail you are until you come to grips with the fact that I can't handle this. It's only then do we really understand the grace of God and the power of God and the strength of God. So Paul says, I glory in my weakness, that in him I can be made strong. But he had to be weak before he could understand that strength. And the reality is we have to suffer before we understand God's deliverance. Three, Paul warned the Corinthians, uh, excuse me, Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that Paul had been under such stress that he felt that he would die as a result that he was caring, that he was despaired of life itself. And uh, again, Paul felt as though he could take it no longer, that he was under the strain, he'd given up hope of living. Why did Paul want the Corinthians to know the degree of his suffering? Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that Paul had been under such stress so that the Corinthians would know the source of Paul's strength. Not to just know it intellectually, but to experience in the time of their sufferings. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we are able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul wanted them to know that he wasn't a superman. And so often it is that Christian leaders are held up as supermen and superwomen, that they are unique. Their uniqueness does not lie in their own personal fortitude and strength. 
It lies in their dependence upon God. How God sees them through their sufferings and their needs and their limitations. And again, and I, I don't want to just beat a dead horse, but it's why it's so valuable to read autobiographies. For so often the Christian leaders are put on pedestals by others. But the autobiographies, the diaries, you read Charles Wesley's diary. You see not a humble man, you see a man who's been humbled. You see a man in his need. You see an individual who's crying out to Christ and finding that strength that only Christ can provide. That's what we need to emulate. That's what we need to understand. That we are a people who are in need of Christ. God had brought Paul through this ordeal. He despaired of life, but he continued to minister. He felt like he couldn't go on, but Paul was faithful to the last day of his life because God met him in his weakness and his need. Conclusion, if you're suffering physically, emotionally, or spiritually, you're in good company with a host that have gone before you. If you're suffering physically, emotionally, or spiritually, it is not a sign of spiritual immaturity. No one would say Spurgeon or uh, Luther or Calvin or Paul were immature in their faith. They simply didn't understand the scriptures well enough. Or somehow they were lacking in their commitment to God. Now, the, these were people who loved the Lord, who loved his word, and were desiring to bring him honor and glory to God. D, God stands willing, able, and ready to help you. In fact, God is helping you even now. Uh, that's the great message. God stands ready, willing to help you. And as I was saying this morning, he's helping you even now, even as God was helping Elijah while he was under the broom tree, bringing him to Mount Horeb. And uh, I pray, if there is anyone who is suffering tonight, whatever entity or degree, I hope these messages bring a measure of comfort Because I don't want you to beat yourself up. I want you to look to the Lord. And I think what's so important is that you understand that the Lord welcomes you. The Lord understands. The Lord is not going to rebuke you for your struggles, for your limitations. He remembers we are but dust. He's acquainted with all our ways. He knows our downsitting and our uprising. He understands our thoughts afar off. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And he says, cast your care upon me, knowing that I care 
for you. Don't be ashamed. Just be needy. And just ask God for help. Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask that you would help us. Help us in our needs. We're all needy in different ways. We all know our own struggles. We all know our own limitations. Lord, may we not hide them from you. May we not be embarrassed of them. But Lord, may we acknowledge that you are so higher than what we are. You can bear what we cannot bear. You can suffer what we cannot suffer. And we ask that you would come and help us. And in that help, that we would point to you that others in help might know the source of our strength and be pointed to the Lord Jesus who can be their help too. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.